The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they had become fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what it was that he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning again, everyone, and welcome. Thank you for being here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, final Sunday in the season of Epiphany. And as we've told you throughout this season, the word Epiphany means to reveal or to make known or even to unveil, which is exactly what happens in the passage that Josh just read for you. There, the disciples see Jesus unfailed with their own eyes. And, and maybe you notice that throughout all three of passages, the themes of faces and veils reoccur. And in Luke 9, the spiritual veil that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, it gets lifted. And Peter, James, and John, they see God's face, which raises the question, for what do you believe that you were created? For what were you created? Up until about 500 years ago, the church, all Christians and all generations, traditions, all places, all had the same unrivaled answer. It's become a little bit confused since then, but one answer up until then, and that was God's face. You were made for God's face, to see him, his face with your own eyes. And C.S. Lewis, in his novel, Until We Have Faces, he plays upon this answer. And I can't help thinking about that book whenever I preach on the transfiguration. It tells the story of three princesses, Oriol, Redival and Psyche. And their father, the king, had no sons. And so Oriol was destined to be queen, but she was unattractive. That was her first problem, physically unattractive. And her life was also somewhat of an unattractive life. It was full of pain and tragedy and betrayal. And her continual response to all of the difficulty of her life made her into an even uglier person emotionally and spiritually. And so the unattractive queen became an even uglier, or an unattractive princess became an even uglier queen. 
and she's changed over time. She's transfigured. And so too are you being changed. You're being changed. You're being transfigured. The question is by what and for what end? In other words, what kind of people are we being changed into? And what kind of people do we need to be changed into to more fully see God's face? Again, the reason for which we were created. And so two points this morning. Number one, Moses' veil. In our Old Testament reading here from Exodus 34, Moses wears a veil. And then Paul speaks about that very veil in our epistle reading. And maybe you caught why it was that the text says that Moses wears this veil. If you read commentators on this, they oftentimes get it wrong. They say that the glory of God, God's divine brilliance, it it gets imparted and reflected in Moses's face. And so that glory is unendurable for Israel to see. And so Moses has to wear a, a veil in order to shield them from it. And that makes sense theologically, biblically, because faces and glory, the glory that they reveal are major themes throughout the Bible. In fact, the Bible begins speaking about faces. In Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, the very first two verses in the scriptures, we read about the face of the waters. And why that language? Well, in part because it's telling us this is how, how personal and intimate and up close the God of the Bible is. That everything in all creation, even oceans, have faces before him. And then if you, you go on to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin. And do you remember what it says that they hid from? They hid from God. But you remember what it says? It says they hid from his presence. But in Hebrew, guess what word it is? Face. They hid from the face of God. That's how personal, intimate, up close, engrossed, and engaged God is with all of his creation, especially you who are made in his image. And so they hid from God's face because that is what sin has cost us. It's cost us God's loving, life-giving, delighting, and delightful, glory-revealing face, which is why in Exodus chapter 33, just one chapter right before this passage that we read, Moses asks for it back. He prays for two things. He prays that God won't destroy Israel because of their sin and because of the episode with the golden calf. And then he prays that he might see God's glory in his face. And God says, I won't destroy Israel because you have found favor in my sight and you have prayed for them. I won't destroy them, but you cannot see my face because no man can see my face and live. And why? Because that's the wreck that we've become post-sin. That's, that's the damage that's been done. So damaged and polluted and corrupted we are, so spiritually unpure and unclean in all sorts of ways that the glory of God's face is like a fire that burns up anything impure and unclean, and that's us. And so our faces, what's most intimate and personal and revealing about us can't endure God's face. What's most intimate and personal and revealing about him. So we can't endure the very thing for which we were created. And that's our problem. Many commentators say that's why Moses wore the veil. And again, it makes sense biblically, theologically. Problem is that's just not what the text says. Neither Exodus 34 or 1 Corinthians 3. In Exodus 34 or 2 Corinthians 3, what um, Exodus 34 does say is that when they saw Moses' unveiled face, they were afraid. But what does Moses do? He calls them closer to speak to them with an unveiled face. And it doesn't say that he put on a veil until after he had, been, he had finished speaking to them. He would go in to speak to God. He would lift off the veil as well. And then he would come out and speak with them again with an unveiled face. And then again, put it on once he was finished speaking. So he spoke with an unveiled face. And why? Why the veil at any, for any reason? 
And Paul says in verse 13, so that the Israelites might not gaze at or see the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words, the glory that was being reflected in Moses's face, it would decline. It would fade. It would lose its brilliance. And so to hide its decline, he would put on a veil. And Moses' glory would decline because it was a sign that everything about him, everything about his leadership, all of the Old Testament Mosaic law, it was all eventually going to come to an end. All the sacrifices come to an end. All the dietary restrictions, all the ceremonies, all the religious rules, all of that from the Old Testament would come to an end. At some point, it would lose their glory. It would lose its weight, its worth, its significance, and its importance. And so what Paul is saying here is stop living for something whose glory is declining. That's the point. Stop living for something that's glory is declining because the Old Testament law and all about it, it was fulfilled. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, fulfilled it. And so its glory had come to an end. So stop living for that which glories, it will fade or decline into emptiness, nothingness. And many Jewish people in that day and age, they simply couldn't do it. They could not. They could not give up what they had always known and the glory and the beauty of the Old Testament law and all that it prescribed. Even some Jewish people who would become Christians, they would demand that people continue keeping the Old Testament law because they believed that it was something so brilliant to look at. And Paul is saying it was beautiful. It was brilliant in its day. It had amazing value. But now it's old. It's outdated. And it's far, far less valuable. And I've told you before about the time that Steven Spielberg showed up at my family farm in Oklahoma. And it wasn't actually Steven Spielberg, but it was his set designer because he was traveling around Oklahoma uh, for the movie Twister looking for barns and old farmhouses and old equipment to blow up. And so he showed up at my farm and he spoke to my grandfather and the conversation went something like this. I'm here representing Steven Spielberg. And my grandfather said, who? And he said, you know, E.T. He's like, I don't know what E.T. is. Or Indiana Jones, haven't ever said, and had no idea. And he said, well, I'd like to blow up your barn, which did not go over very well. So he told him to leave and told him where he could go and, you know, all of those sort of things. And then my dad got there, saw his card, called him back, and sure enough, they wanted to blow up our entire farm, which made sense because there was this old farmhouse that no one had lived in for 30 years. It was dilapidated, falling down, paint falling off was terrible. And then there was these old combines that, that were rusted and ancient. They haven't been driven in years upon years. And there was this old chicken coop that just was a house for all sorts of junk, including this old refrigerator that one day as a child, I decided I was going to open it up. And I opened it up and dozens upon dozens upon dozens of mice were scurrying all around. You know, those ant farms that you look at, and you can see the colony. It was like that, but it was face to face right there with me. And I pulled so hard to get that door open that several of them fell out upon me. It was traumatic. I would have blown up that chicken coop and gotten paid by Steven Spielberg in a heartbeat, but not, not my grandfather because he loved something whose glory had faded. He was living something whose glory was nothing like it was before. And that's what Paul is saying. And why is he bringing it up to these Corinthian Christians? It's not because there was a whole lot of Jewish Christians in that church who were demanding that everyone live according to the Old Testament law and its old glory. That was true of other churches, not here. But it was because there were many Christians that were living for other things that had a fading glory. It wasn't the Old Testament law, but it was something. 
something else whose worth, significance, importance, and weightiness was fading and would continue to decline to the point where someday it would be nothing, utter emptiness. And you need to know that ancient Corinth was a whole lot like modern Austin now. It was a place where everyone in the whole world was moving to, and everyone in the world's moving to Austin. 2020 and 2021 had Austin as ranked number one as the, the highest job growth of any city in the United States. So everyone's moving here. Corinth was a new city like Austin, had all sorts of new wealth. Do you know that there were more $10 million homes sold in Austin last year than in Dallas? How about that? And also that there'll be more billionaires in Austin, Texas by the end of this year than are many U.S. cities, including Los Angeles. That is where we live. That's the amount of wealth that's pouring into this city. Corinth was also young. It was a young population and ambitious and upwardly mobile, just like Austin. It was also a place that prized beauty and power and influence and performance, especially oratory. If you are a gifted, beautiful speaker in Corinth, you were somebody. It was also a highly sexualized and heavy partying culture. In fact, the most iconic and visible building was the Temple of Epaphrodite that sat on the mountain ridge above Corinth. And every night, temple prostitutes would descend into the city, as many as a thousand on given nights, to have intercourse with anyone who would pay the temple tithe to them. And it wasn't illegal. It wasn't disgraceful in any way. It was utterly common and utterly acceptable. They loved and lived for worldly power and connection, political connection, cultural influence, performance, talent, giftedness, sport. They held the, the Corinthian games. They were as big as the Olympic games at that time. So physical strength and physical beauty and youthfulness and clothes and jewelry and sex and food and wine and wealth and all of those things. They lived for them. That was the glory that they lived for. And so too do we. And Paul says, you can do that. But you have to know that someday you will see that the weight and the worth and the importance of all that you live for always had a glory that was always fading and would someday decline into nothing. And also at some point, you will have the veil lifted. All of us will. And at some point, we will see true glory. We will see what it is and where it resides. And so we have to ask ourselves today, what declining glories are we living for? What declining glories are we setting our heart upon? Because we all have veils. We all have veils that, that are over the very eyes of our heart that hide the declining glory of all of these things that we live for. But what we need is to gain and to behold a true and lasting glory, one that doesn't decline, but one that actually increases. Or as Paul says in verse 18, did you notice this language? A glory that moves from one degree to another. It's not declining, it's growing. So do you know that? Do you have that? Do you have a glory that's not declining? What declining glory are you living for now? That's Moses' veil. Point number two, Jesus' descent. In Luke 9, the veil gets lifted for Peter, James, and John, and they see glory like they have never seen before. And each year we preach on this story. I've preached on the transfiguration 10 to 12 times at this point. And each and every year I tell you something of the same message that is that this is the first time in Jesus's life where his humanity doesn't veil his deity, but his deity shines out forth and through his humanity. And Peter and James and John, they see it. They see the skin of his face and they see God in the skin of his face. And they begin to realize what they're seeing, that they're seeing God. And notice they don't want to leave. Did you notice that? Peter says something somewhat foolish. 
and unadvised, but in verse 33, he says, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents. Let's stay here. Let's stay here. He doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to go back down the mountain, despite he has a wife down the mountain, and he has a job as a fisherman down the mountain. He has this ministry with Jesus that's helping all of these hurting people, but he doesn't want to leave. Momentarily, he forgets all of that and why. Because the face that he has longed for in everything he's now seen. And so why do the lonely long for friendships? And some of you are lonely. Why do you long for friendships? Why do most single people long for marriage? Or why do those in bad marriages want out and want another spouse and long to see a face that truly loves them and delights them, accepts them? Or why do couples who have no children long for children to see the face in those children? And, and what's so attractive about sexual love? And what's so spiritual about meals, about sitting across the table from someone? You, you look into their face, you look into their eyes, and you see love and delight and acceptance. What's so spiritual about that? It's because we see the glimpses of the face in all faces. We see a slight glimpse of the face that we lost in all of the faces, all of your faces that bear the image of God. You're a slight glimpse, a slight taste of the face that we were all created for. But you were created for God's face and no one else. So there's no spouse, there's no parent, there's no child, there's no leader, whatever type of leader, no political leader, no pastor, no friend who can ever be for you what God is for you. And if you try to make them into that, you will ruin the relationship. You'll crush that relationship. If you try to make them into something, they cannot be for you because there's only so much joy and only so much forgiveness and only so much comfort and guidance and security and protection that we can provide for one another. At some point, we all have to see and find and seek what it is that Peter, James, and John find here at the very end of this passage, which is everything else fades to black, and it says it's only Jesus. It's Jesus alone. At some point, we all have to seek and find that, or all of the other relationships will be things that we just simply put too much weight, too much weight upon and wreck. And I've told you all of that before, years and years of preaching on the transfiguration. But here's what I want to tell you today, and here's what I want to close with. And that is what comes right before the transfiguration and what comes right after the transfiguration. That's why our gospel reading was a little bit long today. It's because what comes right before are some of the hardest sayings that Jesus ever utters. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. If you're gonna, in other words, if you're going to follow me daily, you've got to pick up your cross to do so. And then he says, whoever loses their life in this world, this life, will actually gain it if they lose it for my sake. Very hard sayings. And then the transfiguration and then this demonized boy. Now, why would Luke book in the transfiguration like this with these hard, hard sayings and then a demonized boy? Well, I think it's in part to show us the necessity of descent for our transfiguration. Because Jesus comes down the mountains and he meets a father who has an only son who's under the powers of sin, death, and evil. And it's this poignant, dramatic episode. He says, I beg you. He cries out, I beg you, look at my son. Help my son. He's my only child. And then he tells him that there's this evil spirit that mauls him. That's the language. Scarcely leaves him. And that no one has been able to do anything to help him. And some of you need to read yourself into that boy. Some of you need to see and to hear yourself in that boy because it's not an evil spirit that you're dealing with, but it is an addiction or, or it is an anxiety that you can't shake 
or it is a sickness or a disease that's not been healed, or it's some sin, or it's some vice that despite all your best efforts, you've not been able to shake. Or it is a traumatic or old broken relationship that always weighs heavy upon you, that always grinds upon your soul. Or it's a longing that's never been fulfilled, or it's a shame or guilt in your past that you just can't get past. You need to see that Jesus heals this boy. And he can heal you. He can. And here's how he can. And it's through his descent, through his descent to the cross, because the transfiguration and this healing together, they portray the cross. Because think about it. In the story, there are two fathers and there are two only sons. One son is glorified and lifted up high on a mountain. And another only son is low, down the mountain, low, dashed to the ground. And Jesus, having heard the words of his father over him, high and exalted, he comes down the mountain. He lifts up this, old, this other son, lifts him up from the ground, gives him new life, and gives him back to his father. And friends, that is the gospel in short. That's the gospel in the nutshell. That Jesus left the glories of heaven high and exalted. He came to earth, took on our humanity, took on all of our suffering, all of the consequences for all of our sin, everything that afflicts us. And he died on the cross that he might give us back to his father, that he might give us back, that he might give everything back. Ultimately, that he might give back the very face of God shining in Jesus. And friends, believing that, embracing that in the depths of your soul, it is the only way that you will ever answer those hard sayings of Jesus. It's the only way that you will daily take up your cross, whatever that may be, whatever sufferings or losses or burdens that you bear. It's the only way that you will trust him to pick that up and follow him by faith. If you've seen him descend to where you are, it's the only way you'll give up your life for another life. Only if you know, and you've seen true real glory, that is giving up your life for the sake of someone else. That's the transfiguration. That is who God is. That is what love is. That is what true glory is. Not someone else's life poured out for you, but your life poured out for them. That is what can transfigure you. And near the end of her life, Oriole, that queen, the ugly queen in the, in the novel, Until We Have Faces, she writes a complaint against the gods. She says that she's done nothing but serve them, honor them, but they've given her nothing but hurt and grief and loss. And she's completely powerless before them so that all that she can do is complain about them. And so she writes a complaint and it's bitter and it's scathing. It's as ugly as she has become. And Oriole writes her complaint against the gods, but then they give her a vision. They lift the veil. They give her a vision of her life from their perspective, from divine perspective. And she begins to realize that it wasn't they who treated them so wrongly, that they weren't the source of, of all of her pain and difficulties. In fact, all of her choices, all of that which she had done, all, all of the, the poor, foolish, sinful choices, that was the course of, of, of all of the pain that she had realized. But then there was even something more shocking. And that is that they had come time and time again to her, that the gods had descended to her, to where she was, to lift her up and to lift her out of all of the pain and the brokenness that she had caused, and to do good for others, and even to do good for her, that they had descended to her to lift her up. And so she writes a second book, and this is how she ends the second book. This is how the entire novel ends. She says, I ended my first book, my complaint, with the words, no answer. And she says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. 
You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might, and then she dies, and she doesn't finish the sentence. And that's how the book ends. I might, and then it ends. I might what? I don't know, but maybe I might listen. Because what's the one thing that God the Father says from heaven as Jesus is being transfigured? He says, listen. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all of us need to heed that, but some of us especially. Some of us need to stop talking so much and stop worrying so much if we'll be heard in whatever situation that we face right now. Stop broadcasting our own thoughts and our opinions so often. Stop being so sure that our thoughts and our opinions are right and start listening. Start listening, especially to God in his word. And Lent begins Wednesday. On Ash Wednesday, I hope that you'll join us. It's a time to dedicate yourself to listening, to reading God's word and to listening to him through it and to do so in an intentional way again and to take off and to put away whatever it is that inhibits your hearing of him through it. So listen and then descend because Lent is also a time to move low, to descend inwardly into the depths of our own soul and our own brokenness, our own hurts and losses, and to take an honest inventory of the state of our soul. What's the state of your soul? Lent is a time to descend into the very basement of our souls and our characters, to go as low as necessary, and to acknowledge whatever it is that we find there, and to let it go, and to throw it out, whatever it is that we find there. And then also, not simply to descend inwardly, but to descend outwardly to others who are already low and in empathy, and in kindness, and in grace, move to them and help them to lift them up. In fact, to allow them to be the very cross that we might bear. Because listening and then descending, that's how we're transfigured. That's how we're prepared to see the very face of God, the very thing for which you were created. So listen and descend, and you will be changed. You will be changed from one glory to another, and behold true glory as you do. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would know that which the Apostle Paul speaks of, that we would know one degree of glory to another, that that would be true of us. Father, we thank you for your son, for his descent to us. So in him, may we listen and may we descend to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.